Welcome to season two of How to Scale, the podcast by Frog Capital focused on helping software companies successfully scale up. In season one, we covered a range of topics with our group of operating partners who have learned from years of experience the different challenges all companies face on their way to scale. This is part of Frog's scale-up methodology, which brings together insights and tools to help improve companies' probability of reaching sustainable profitability. My name is Jens Düring. I'm one of the senior partners at Frog Capital. We invest in purpose-driven European software companies in the scale-up phase. In season two, myself and my colleagues are interviewing seasoned professionals in our network who share our passion for scaling purpose-driven software companies in Europe. Welcome today. My name is Mike Reed. I am one of the senior partners at Frog Capital. Uh, delighted today to be speaking to Martin Liu, uh, and we are going to be talking about the role of purpose in software scale-ups. So welcome, Martin. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. So let's get straight into it. Um, who's Martin? How did you get to where you've got to and what kind of experience have you had along the way? So I guess I had, I've had quite a sort of zigzaggy career journey um, and I fell into tech in the late 90s when I was asked to run a medical software company by someone that I knew and took over from the founder. Uh, then went through the whole sort of dot-com boom and, uh, and bust and was faced with a situation really where I had to make a decision what to do next. And I was approached to, uh, uh, through LDC actually, to become chief executive of a small software company based in Windsor called Transaction Technology with a product for accountants called Iris. And then spent 10 years really building that up from a very small company, uh, uh, 2 million EBITDA, so I mean, not tiny, but not big, 100 employees to um, over 1,200 employees and 50 million EBITDA. Um, and really important was actually market leadership in the key markets that we operated in. So ultimately, we were the leading player for accountancy practices, for legal practices, second largest payroll software business in the UK, uh, and also the leader in the not-for-profit market. Uh, as well for software. Fantastic achievement, Martin. And with that kind of scale, a huge amounts of, of learnings. Uh, so, so really interested to hear kind of what were the main takeaways from that uh, part of your life and, and how have you channeled that into what you do today? So I think if we're talking about purpose and sustainability, um, I started off, and it probably sounds strange, it was all about sustainable income initially. Mm. So when I joined Iris, uh, there were three main changes that I made. As I said, the company was called Transaction Technology, which was a bit of a mouthful. Our biggest competitor was Sage, which was a nice four-letter word. And our product was Iris. So it made most sense to actually change the business name to Iris yep. uh, and get everyone behind the brand and then start thinking about what that brand actually meant. Uh, and because we were into automation, it was really about um, how do we make it easy in that particular case back then for accountancy practices to automate everything they did. And then how could we be the friend of the professional to look at ways that their uh, competitors would be viewing them thinking, wow, why are they doing so well? Maybe I should look at what software they're using. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be ours. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was change number one. Um, and just to stop you there, because yeah. really interesting to summarize, you know, how powerful the rebrand was. In terms of reguiding the business, not only just a four simpler word, but actually kind of almost taking a retake of the business together with very much a view on the product 
and the, how, how strong the product was in delivering customer satisfaction? Yeah, we had to have a really good product to start with, which we did. Uh, and I made the brand change six months in. But it was also a way of me taking over from the founder and really establishing a new sense of energy and direction for the business. So yep. that was really important. Yep. Um, the second change um, was that I wanted every employee to be a shareholder. Uh, and back then, I mean, bear in mind this is over 20 years ago, mm. it was really unusual, particularly within PE-backed businesses, for anyone apart from a small number of the senior executive team to be shareholders. But I felt it was very, very important that if we built a successful business, that when it came to some form of exit, it wouldn't just be a small number of people right. enjoying it. And that was another way of energizing everyone so that they all felt like owners of the business and, and were. So it was it was all about getting everyone focused on the right direction. Mm. And then the third bit, which when I talked about sustainability of income, um, again, uh, it's a little story, but, but, yeah, my wife had sort of persuaded me that, that getting uh, a skybox was a really good idea. And I guess being an accountant by training, when she explained to me how much it was per month and that it was an annuity, uh, <laughs> once we got it, they kept you. Um, I realized that this little box that was costing a small amount per month, probably over a lifetime would be quite a lot. Yeah. And then started to apply that to our own product. Uh, which had already had initial fees, but the market back then was really a high initial fee and small maintenance. And so we switched it the other way. So then having a superior product, which, you know, we sat yep. on one single database and going into the marketplace to persuade uh, professionals to switch, it was very easy to get them to switch because it was a great product. Uh, rated by the Institute of Chartered Accountants as mm. the best product you know, in its sort of cadre. Uh, and it was a very low barrier to entry to take it on, mm. um, but a very high annuity stream. And so that's where the sustainability came in, because when you make that move, you're not just selling a product, you actually have to sell a total experience because they were annual contracts. And if you want people to renew, and we did, yep. we had over 98% customer retention. You don't want to have a situation where they've taken it and at the end of the year, they, yeah. they, they, they drop it. So we recognized that we weren't just selling the product. It was a complete experience. Yeah. Stepping forward in time, what have you taken from that? And then clearly you're very passionate and active around the purpose-led yeah. field. So t talk us through that. So if, if you look at where I am now, I, I left Iris 12 years ago, so it was quite, quite a long, long while. And we've had a very successful run. We've been through three private equity-backed buyouts. And I had the good fortune to just have a little bit of time to think, okay, what do I want to do next? Yeah. And... Um, I was really keen to be able to find some way of giving back to society. But the more that I looked at it, I realized that actually business could be a force for good. Because although we've got some amazing NGOs out there, we've got some amazing charities, there's a phenomenal amount of capital and talent locked into the private sector, which if that could be leveraged in some way, could be really a powerful force for change. And the more that I looked at it, the more and the more I asked around and asked people that I respected, you know, can you name me a brand that has been able to combine uh, a purpose, giving back to society with scalability and and, and great profits and value yeah. creation? Uh, the only one anyone could mention was Patagonia. Now I'm sure there were others, but it wasn't something that people gave a great thought mm -hmm. to. So the last 12 years, I've really been building a portfolio of about 30 businesses now that I've backed 
um, all with the intention to be scale up impact businesses for profit uh, with a focus on delivering either social mobility and or improving uh, the environment. Mm -hmm. So that's my main thing really under Growth for Good. Uh, and I'm also chairman of a company called Ground Control, which is a much bigger business, which uh, cares for the environment for, for large corporates. And then when it comes to purpose, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about your definition. And I think you've got an analogy that you find quite useful. Yeah, so, so you know, what, do you, what is purpose? I think it's important for any business leader to think, firstly, what do I actually stand for? What will I tolerate? What won't I tolerate? And if you take purpose beyond that, and I said with Iris, it was all around making it easy. That's what we wanted to do, is to make it easy for professionals to be able to automate. If you take that a step further and start thinking, well, as a brand, what do I want to be known for? What do I want to be remembered for? How do I stand out in the market? Purpose is very much about, about that to me. Uh, and when you link that, as I said, to impact around either social mobility, the environment, or other aspects of purpose, um, and look also at where value gets lost in organizations. There's a huge amount of value leakage from uh, um, both employee turnover and from customer turnover. I talked about the two things I did at Iris. One was the employee shareholder base, which actually helped with retention. We had to do a lot of other things too. Um, but also the total customer experience meant that we kept our customers. Now, if you run a purpose business, by rights, you should be able to attract really good talent and retain it, and also attract amazing customers and retain those too. Mm. So for me, purpose was all sort of wrapped up in the value creation piece, because people used to say to me you know, 10 years ago, that if you do what you're trying to do, expect lower returns. And my view was actually this should be the same and possibly even higher yeah. if you're doing the right thing. And if you can do that, then you'll attract more capital, and then actually more businesses will be able to, to deliver greater impact to, uh, um, to, to the countries we live in. And how have you, um, come, have you found coming across companies which fundamentally you feel don't really have a positive purpose, but are trying to look like they do, um, or, or help guide uh, entrepreneurs to, to changing their businesses quite dramatically to the way you think from, I guess, either a uh, highly commercial model, which may not imbue that, or what's your sense around? It's a really good question, Mike. The businesses I tend to back are the ones that are uh, uh, have got a clear purpose, um, and I won't look at them unless that, they, that I can actually see that there is a potential for them to do some good. But then I'll take the same approach as I would do with any other investment. So I'm looking at it and saying, first of all, is there an addressable market? Is that market growing? Mm -hmm. The second and probably the most important thing I've learned in business is about the, the compelling reason to buy. So it may be a great big market, but is the product or service one which is sufficiently differentiated and also compelling that people say, actually, that's a really interesting thing mm. and I want it now? Because I've seen so many businesses out there that have got really exciting things that you look at, but there isn't that compelling event mm. that, you know, uh, 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 that, that's going to get people to, to, to buy now. So that's absolutely crucial to be able to test that. 
Um, the third one, and these aren't in necessarily in order, but it is the team. Yeah, is it a macable founder? How yeah. good are they? Or, or, or two, more than one founder? How good are they at bringing other really great people around them? I've I've worked a lot with founders, both taking over from founders and and backing them. Uh, and some people uh, put a, bring around them people who clearly are better than them at a whole range of different things. Mm. And I said, look, actually, as a founder, as a chief executive, you know, you, you you need to be the conductor of the orchestra. You might play a number of different instruments, but you actually want people who can play th- those individual instruments far better than you. And you make great music by conducting it. So that's really important. Great, great analogy. Really important to, to, to find someone who, who's a good conductor. Um, and then um, you need a business model, as I said, that is sustainable. You know, for over 20 years now, I've been involved in businesses that have got predictable recurring revenue, whether you call that SaaS or, or whatever you call it, but you've got renewable contracts and you go into each year knowing that there's a relatively large base of business that you won last year that's going to take you through into, in, into this year. So, um, you know, I, I describe myself really as a sort of unashamed capitalist in that, that I'm looking to back businesses that, that can grow, that, that can create value, that can create impact. Um, and by scaling, yeah, everyone should benefit as a result. Got it. Yeah. No. And then when we were talking earlier, you've, um, if we can get into some of the, um, how to make structure, purpose and impact within the organization and this balance you've, you've got around simplicity of communication in terms of running a team. So um, I learned a lot because we, as I say, Aris was at 100 people was the biggest business I'd run. Uh, I'd run a business prior to that, which had got up to probably about 100. But then growing from 100 to 1,200, a lot of it organic, and then subsequently through a lot of M&A, uh, was a very big change for me. So it was a big learning process as it as it grew. And I often say to younger entrepreneurs, just don't worry about the fact you've never done it before, because most people that you know have, have been able to build businesses never had done before what they've done. So yeah, as long as you've got good people around you to to to, to support you, uh, don't worry about the fact that you're going into completely uncharted territory. But the simplicity point was one that really came to me as we grew, because yeah, at our we, we grew revenues, we grew EBITDA, and as I say, uh, we grew market share at a fairly rapid rate. And as I was doing the, uh, 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 the presentations to employees, I was realizing that whilst the output of what we were achieving you know, was fantastic, uh, the one thing that really bound everyone together was both the product and the product experience. And not everyone, and this is particularly, uh, uh, not, but not only, but particularly the software engineers, quite often it was the excitement around what they were creating with the product. And yes, the revenues and profit were growing, but when I presented it, it wasn't exciting them as much as the stuff around what we were, were, were creating. So I came up with this framework, which I've used everywhere since, of a Greek temple. So if you imagine the Parthenon in Athens, You've got this structure there that has got foundations uh, to start with, and that's why it's been there for over 2,000 years. Uh, If you're going to build a business or an organization, you've got to have really strong foundations. And for me, those foundations have got to be the culture and the values, because we've seen too many organizations that have grown, have had weak culture, values that people haven't kept to, 
Um, and then cracks have started to appear that got bigger and quite often they've collapsed. So when I'm in businesses or when I work with businesses or when I invest in businesses, it's really key, really important for me to ensure that the foundations there are strong and, uh, uh, to start with. Um, once you've got the foundations in place, um, the next area I'd, I'd say of simplicity are the pillars that hold the roof up. And, um, Focus is really important and focus particularly on identifying what are those core competences that we need to be really good at as an organization. And quite often what happens as organizations grow, they become very good at a whole variety of things, but they're not necessarily really good at the things they need to be good at. Uh, and you see that a lot in software companies that have grown and product management that was really strong at the beginning when the founder identified a market opportunity. When the founder maybe has gone or as the company's grown and the founder's maybe taken on a different role, that starts to get lost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in a software company, I'd say product management is one of the most important core competencies that, that you can have. But I say keep, keep it to about six. And then I say, well, like, actually, what are the things that are not core competencies that maybe we can find partners that can do it way better than we can, because it enables focus and you can measure it as well. So you can measure your value, your, your culture, um, how uh, happy your employees are. There are lots of ways that you can measure that. You can assess your core competencies and you can assess them against other organizations that are world class in that particular competency, not necessarily in your market. Above the columns are the it would be the frieze that you'd have in a Roman or, or Greek temple, and that might have some numbers on it. They, they might be numbers for where you want to get to at a certain point in time, but also your vision and your ambition of where you want to get to and your purpose, so that everyone can see really clearly, sort of blazoned across the front of it, is where we're we're, we're heading. Um, and then the final point really is the the roof which I always describe as being a roof with lots of tiles, which you can measure through net promoter scoring because each one of those tiles represents a, a customer or a partner or other organizations that you work with that you want to be able to, you want them to be recommending you to, to others. Now, the beauty of the Greek temple I found was that when I presented it to our employees, they could see where they sat within it. It might be more than one place that they, they could play a part, but it showed how everyone could play a part in creating the the whole structure. That's that's great, Martin. Very very visual, and as you say, <laughs> um, are really important to simplify and make it relevant to everybody in the business. Um, one one last area, maybe to, to delve into. I'm, I'm really interested then in, in the stages of scale in terms of team size that you allude to, the sort of hundred to two fifty, two fifty to five, etc. Um, what what advice would you give at various stages aside from from the analogy you've just given around um, what watching out for as you break through certain employee team barriers? That is again really really important question. So uh, as I said, I was learning very much as I went along, and uh, anyone who knew me back then would know that uh, I always wanted to know everyone that we employed. Uh, uh, I'd like to know a bit about them. So when I first joined, uh, uh, we had a hundred people and I did a one to one with every person in, in the company, which actually the board was quite surprised at my interview when I said that's what I wanted to do. But actually the questions I asked them back then, uh, the first hundred people were, if you were boss for the day, what change would you want to make? Because coming into an organization that had been run for 22 years by the original founder, I was, I was coming in completely fresh. And listening to those hundred people gave me a great start. 
moving from 100 to 300 was, I'd say, relatively okay in that I knew, still knew everybody, who they were, a bit about them, what made them tick, uh, and actually really felt like a family. Um, as we got bigger beyond that, I then split the organization up into different business units because I realized that at the 100, 150 point, or maybe even up to, maybe even up to about 200, 250, you could sort of know who everybody was and it could feel like family. But once it got bigger than that, it became quite difficult. So I then needed to find MDs, divisional MDs who could run businesses that were growing from maybe 100 to, you know, to a size of two, two or 300 to effectively replicate what I'd done before. So breaking it up in that way helped, I think. Um, the other uh, uh, thing that was really important were, was the balance between recruiting great people from outside and actually developing your own people uh, uh, as well. Because if, obviously, if you bring too many people from, uh, in, from outside, then it not only changes the uh, culture, but it also quite often the people within the business actually feel that, that they haven't got the opportunity. Mm. But, but to grow the business, I did also need some amazing people from outside to support me. So we went out to try and find the very, very best people we could as part of the executive team, as well as uh, promoting from within. But the area, I think, uh, of, that people don't often realize, and I've seen it time and time again, are the cracks that you tend to get in the middle. Because what happens as you grow is that the people who are in the, the middle management type roles are getting pressure from above and pressure from below. And quite often, unless you actually put in the, the training and develop, that development, they're not well equipped to deal with it. So we put a lot of effort, investment and learning into developing uh, what I initially called a future leaders program, which was identifying star people within the organization who maybe weren't yet in leadership roles or who, who were new into them that we could invest time and effort into. And also when you get to a lot of people and you're running that organization, you don't always hear anything firsthand because it's going through various layers of communication and people decide what they want to tell you and what they don't want to tell you. So two things that I did to help me in particular, one was I would regularly go and just listen to phone calls. We had, we'd built a telesales team, we had a really good customer service team, or just going out on the road with, uh, with our sales team. But just listening, learning and getting feedback. I'd often hear things that sometimes I wouldn't hear through various layers of management, anything. It could be yeah, around data quality or it could be around issues that employees had with the way that we were running the business or quite often there were policies that, that had been issued that, that um, yeah, someone on the front line talking to a customer might be told this is what you've got to do but not told why you've got to do it so they could understand yeah. it. So they, they, they were really important to do. Uh, the Future Leaders Programme was incredibly valuable because I could give uh, this small group of people different projects to go out and talk to the rest of the organisation and gather and get the view of younger members of the team who are the next generation of leadership to help. So it's really things like that that helped me the most. So they, they were some of the big challenges. Brilliant, Martin. Re really impactful, tangible things that people can um, take on board. Uh, well, all of that's been absolutely brilliant. Once again, thanks for your time and best of luck with your endeavours. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. 
we welcome all feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for us to cover in future episodes. So please email howtoscale at frogcapital.com. And finally, to make sure you don't miss any future episodes, sign up for the podcast at frogcapital.com slash podcast. Proc invests in purpose-driven European software scale-ups, making a positive impact on society. We look for businesses who have reached product market fit and are generating over 3 million euros of annual recurring revenue, what we see as a characteristic of the scale-up phase. It's a stage where businesses are continuing the path of positive growth, a purpose-driven route to sustainability and profitability. Our own purpose is to help scale the most exciting purpose-driven software companies in Europe. We do this with both capital and our in-house team of operating partners who work closely with all the companies we invest in to overcome the inevitable challenges scale-ups face.